The New Testament reading is from Matthew. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The word of the Lord. We've been looking at uh, the idea of being well, bringing our body and soul together as if they inhabit each other, that we are not dichotomized beings, but that God looks at us and loves all of us, and that he loves all of our world, and he's concerned about wellness in our body, in our spirit, in our emotions, and he's concerned about societal, structural wellness. We've been making this argument during this series that we're not simply individual persons with self-contained challenges who inhabit a benign space, but that instead we're profoundly social creatures who inhabit a space that is fractured and that complicates our attempts, our movement towards wellness Towards wholeness. And we've been framing this series and this idea in front of this larger backdrop of God's cosmic work of redemption and of renewal. And last week we saw how the Bible opens with this idea of a garden in Genesis 1, and then it ends in Revelation 21 with a city, a city that comes down. And these are social, physical spaces. And they're spaces actually of commerce and creativity and cultivation, not just religious devotion. In the two ideal spaces, all of these things go on and they all matter to God. And in fact, they themselves, creativity, cultivation, farming, relationships, all of these things, in fact, are religious in nature. And in the very middle of the story is a social God becoming physical, a social God taking on flesh, taking on, in fact, our flesh. And He comes to inhabit physical, social space. He comes in a body to heal broken bodies in order to, as we sung, make all things new, to make all things, in fact, well, to make them whole. And we're going to look at another episode this morning that kind of builds out that storyline that's embedded in this rather long narrative of Samuel and Kings. And if you haven't read this, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, they're in order in your Bible, so it makes it easy, but it's four books, but it's really just one 
long story. And it's an easy read, at least the first time through. It's full of intrigue. It's full of suspense. It's full of action. But you'll want to read it again, most likely, because you won't catch everything at first. want to read it more slowly because this surface-level simplicity belies an underlying complexity, kind of a, a Sopranos, if you will, like complexity with all of the sex and violence of that show. Also with this rotating cast of characters that tend to depart and pop back in the story at very crucial times. And there's a lot of foreshadowing as well. Foreshadowing in this context way forward, way in the future. And there's an awareness, a sensitivity to come to what comes before it in the story, from not only within the narrative of Samuel Kings, but all the way back to Genesis. And the story of Mephibosheth is like that. He shows up in four different times in these crucial moments, in these episodes that are very crucial to the story, not only at hand, but the story that it tells about the king that will be, the king that will ultimately come, that we believe is the person of Jesus and the type of king that he comes to be. Now, I wish I could shorten Mephibosheth because I'm going to say it probably 20 times, and now Pete has set me up to fail because I don't know if you noticed, but he nailed it every single time. He said all of those complicated words perfectly, and I wish there was a way to shorten it. I couldn't come up with anything. Maybe instead of Mephibosheth, it could be meh. But Mephibosheth is King Saul's grandson. Saul was the first king of the united monarchy, and then went to David and Solomon, and then that was when Israel divided into north and south, Israel and Judah. And that completes your Sunday school history lesson of the day. You can just write that down, but that'll help you as a guide, I think, as you read this narrative, as I'm sure all of you will this Sunday afternoon. But Jonathan is the son of Saul, the first king, and he's David's lifelong friend and compadre. Even though Saul, Jonathan's dad, has been trying to kill David, Jonathan is loyal to them. They have this kind of Sam and Frodo relationship, Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock relationship. They, they never leave each other's side. They're super loyal. Well, Jonathan is Mephibosheth's dad. And when Mephibosheth was five, he was dropped. This is back in chapter four, if you want to read that. He was dropped by a nanny fleeing, running out of the palace because of some of the other action events going on, and he was never able to walk again. So Mephibosheth is royal blood, he's royalty, and yet he's crippled. And being crippled in ancient Israel, in fact, ancient everywhere, is never just about not being able to walk. It's a curse. It's a malediction. And adding to his misfortune, his grandfather Saul and his dad Jonathan die, and the kingship that was within his family, within his bloodline, passes over to David. And Jerusalem becomes then the city 
of David, David, and Mephibosheth is displaced to go and live in lonely exile. Now, it's not clear that he was intentionally banished. It seems that he was sort of just forgotten. His family was no longer significant. He's a cripple of a has-been family. Now, this term cripple is an ugly term, and it's thankfully fallen out of favor. It's very derogatory, and it's very totalizing, which was Mephibosheth's reality, and which is why I'm using it this morning, because he was a cripple. That was his identity. And we're all aware of those things that name us, that mark us, that totalize us, things that we're uncomfortable about, things that we don't like about our anatomy or our our appearance, things that sort of stick out. You know, we kind of want to be special. We want to be seen as being special, and yet not for that sort of reason, right? We want to fit in as it concerns anatomy and physiology and so forth, at least fit into what's considered the broad spectrum of quote-unquote normal. We don't want to feel out of alignment with mainstream culture and with our peers based upon how we look. We don't want to be a little bit too tall or a little bit too short, a little bit too portly, a little bit too thin, a little too bony. We don't want to be too black or too brown. We don't want to be too female in corporate America. We don't want to be too feminine or masculine if those don't fit our assigned gender in church because that marks us out. And then there are those things that are like what Mephibosheth is dealing with here, that even if the naming conventions have changed for the better, and of course we we should care about what Anyone in a minority community wants to be called, even if it does change every few years. And these words like cripple, handicap, then to a little bit more friendly, disabled, and now differently abled. And yet even with a relatively positive nomenclature to these things, they still can carry around a sense of this existential diminishment that we are less than a full person. It can represent a degradation of our spirit, of our spiritual life and being. And even things that are as glorious as having different colored skin, because our culture has a history of prizing and privileging whiteness, even that can become a very diminishing mark. And even if we're proud of it, on one hand, we can be sense of unsafe because of it as well. These things, because they're external, they they introduce us. They come ahead of us into the room, and people begin to describe us internally. They begin to get to know us before we have a chance to have a personal interaction. And we know that these are more than just physical features. They have social implications. They have economic implications. They have spiritual significance. They have cultural. 
You see, Mephibosheth's situation, as we said, is so much deeper than just not being able to walk. And in some way, maybe you can understand that kind of deeper sense of exile, that you've been separated by being in a different class. You've been born into a poor family. Maybe because of a body disablement, you move at a slower pace than the rest of the culture does. Maybe from the time that you had cognitive awareness, you knew that the ceiling of your dreams was lower than that of your friends. Maybe for whatever reason, you've been banished by parents or peers or the church. And maybe just this amorphous sense of loneliness, of exile from humanity, from yourself is set in. Well, I wish I could tell you that this story has a a magic wand that we can wave over all of this and make it go away. It doesn't. But it does have hope. And I want you to see here how Mephibosheth's story and then his life changes by the intervention of someone who in this circumstance has power, has cultural power, has religious power, and uses it on behalf of Mephibosheth. David has established his kingdom, and things are finally going fairly well. The mechanics of the kingdom are working, and so he begins to use his power for the good of others, like good kings do, like good leaders do. And he asks, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul whom I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now, this word kindness is very tame because it's the Hebrew word chesed. I bet you can't say that one, Pete. And it means something far more big than just kindness or just love. This is the loyal love that God shows to humanity. And I gave you the history because you'll know that Saul, his family was a rival family, a rival bloodline. And though they were defeated, David, in asking this question, is effectively asking, is there anyone left in this rival bloodline, is there anyone left in the enemy camp that I can bestow love upon, that I can bestow loyal love upon? And that question flows out of a promise that he had made to Mephibosheth's dad that we don't think Mephibosheth was actually aware of. Because he goes to David in kind of a cowering sense, not aware that he had this covenant of love that was all over him, and he wasn't living out of that. And so he goes before the king, and he's afraid. He described himself as a dead dog. He's lived in exile all these years, and when he hears about what David has invited, that David has invited him to come to Jerusalem he's probably panicked because he's lonely, he's crippled, he's been out of the seat of power, and now he's going to be executed. But he goes and he bows before David in this sense of desolation. And David calls him by name. And you would think that this, on the surface, is a very 
empowering thing. But if you know what Mephibosheth actually means, it doesn't seem that way at first because Mephibosheth means from the mouth of shame. It means seething dishonor. Imagine going to middle school with that name. It's like a boy named Sue. You would get beat up all the time. It's this awful, awful name. And yet David uses it here because he recognizes, knowing Hebrew, what it means. But he doesn't do it to gain power over him, to kind of say, you're here in the palace, but you better know your place. He subverts it in almost this poetic way because he says, Mephibosheth, seething dishonor, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Seething dishonor, I now make you a part of the royal family. That's what's going on here. He's bringing a former enemy who still has claim to the throne into his household. And this isn't just a sweet hallmark moment where he has this great set of words that he gives to Mephibosheth and just says, okay, now go back to where you were and go on about your way. It's not symbolic because his personal love also changes his environment. Friends, love in the Bible is earthy. It's physical. It's embodied. It's social. It's economic. It's environmental. It breaks down real boundaries on behalf of the loved one, on behalf of others. And in this strange paradoxical way, it both recognizes and it acknowledges those barriers and acknowledges those names and yet sees behind them and doesn't allow them to dictate to the person the totality of their existence. You see, it subverts them, but it doesn't just do it spiritually or symbolically. It seeks to take care of the real boundaries that lie in the way of the person believing the promises about them believe in the things that God says about them. It sees behind those labels that maybe have gotten nicer through the years but still have negativity attached to them, disabled, and then we feel worthless. We have less money and we're poor. We don't look like the models on TV and so we're ugly. You see, we subvert the words and take them the other way. And we dig our hole deeper. But in the way that David acts here, and he sets up this beautiful example of not just giving words and spiritual kindness, but restorative love, restorative justice, that is aware of the boundaries that Mephibosheth has lived in, and he takes him out of one physical situation and into another. We don't have, all of us, the power to do that in every situation. 
but we can hope for that. We can long for that. We can work toward that. And the way that, that uh, David does this foreshadows centuries ahead to the king that Jesus is going to be because he calls himself the son of David. And he's the kind of king that gives this sacrificial love, love with hands and feet, love on its knees, love that seeks out restorative justice on behalf of the oppressed, love that puts itself at risk. That was the way that Jesus loved. And in the gospel passage that we read, it says, while Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. Pause. We usually focus on the other part of that story, the woman who comes and anoints Jesus' head with oil, and it's this beautiful but also a somewhat morbid type of affair because she's preparing his body for death. But where is this happening? At Simon's house? Nope. At Simon the leper's house. Simon the leper. Do you see how his condition named him? It ostracized him. It meant that he had to walk on the other side of the street. It meant people like Jesus didn't come to his house. But Jesus does. Even though Simon was, in many ways, his leprosy, Jesus pushes through that boundary And he walks across the street figuratively, and Jesus says, no. He says, I will not live by these boundaries that are ostracizing, that are demeaning, that are totalizing. You see, the person of power, because of love, divests their power on behalf of the person, in this case, who is underprivileged, who is disadvantaged. Jesus divests himself for the person who is exiled and outcast. And so two comments really quickly that are kind of embedded in what we've already talked about. But we get this example of the Bible's kind of love in this action of David and Jesus. We see their paradigm of love is holistic. It's embodied It's physical, and it seeks personal wellness in all of the ways that that person goes about life, in all of the structures that they inhabit, the structures that lift them up and push them down, in all of their social, cultural, religious spaces that their body inhabits. This empowering love seeks to uplift them and seeks to remedy the situation while it gives them the promises of hope, while it gives them the intangible promises of God that are remarkable, that are powerful. You see, Jesus doesn't just tell the leper in his actions. David doesn't just tell Mephibosheth that you are loved despite your disability, despite this disease, despite this crippling accident that you still bear God's image, that despite all of these things, that He loves you and He sees you. And all of this is priceless, necessary, transformative truth, and it can't not be said. But Jesus does more. 
he goes into his home. He's a theological mercenary against everything that the religious culture sets up to keep Simon out. And he puts his power, he puts his reputation, he puts his purity at risk on behalf of this outcast. He crosses the boundaries that cause this person to disbelieve the promises that Jesus wants him to understand and to begin to live out. Do you see that? The good news moves, secondly, not only against our guilt, but it moves against our shame. Guilt is that feeling that you've done something wrong, and shame is that feeling that you are something wrong, that you're somehow less than human. And we take those thoughts and we think ourselves unworthy of love, undeserving of connection, human connection, undeserving of belonging. This injury that Mephibosheth has comes with a lifetime of dishonor and shame, and it will become the subtext of almost every conversation that he has for the rest of his life from the time he's five years old that implies that he is not a whole person, that implies that he bears the mark of Cain, that he is afflicted. In an ancient context, it's a curse. And even though we may sense that we've moved beyond that unenlightened, suspicious, so many of our words still have those religious connotations. The synonyms for disability can be quite spiritual. Deformity, defect, abnormality, affliction, they all suggest somehow that being not normal is to be not good. It is to be less than good. And Jesus says no. And he goes into Simon's home. And he was not content to say, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed. But his love for Simon caused him to put himself at risk to express love with hands and feet, not just with words. And he walked across these religious and cultural and political boundaries so that he can give Simon a seat at the table. And friends, that's what he does for you this morning as he brings you to his table at whatever the cost, even the cost of his own life, the cost of his body, the cost of him being crippled. He makes way for you to have a seat at the table. And so whatever your situation is, whatever your story, whatever your disability, walk tall this week. Walk with a sense that you belong because you do. You belong at God's table because He's made a space for you. And then, friends, walk across those boundaries for others. Put yourself at risk so that others can have a seat at the table. Let's walk towards that table of grace now. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table, as we confess our faith, I pray that we would all learn to not disembody our belief, that we would not believe that simply these things happen, but that we would believe in them 
that we would take up residence in what is depicted and reenacted in this meal, that we would believe in you relationally, socially, culturally, political, politically. Let it change us, the work that you did so many years ago and the work that you continue to do. We pray in your name. Amen.